So I think the lesson to be learned is that A, never count yourself out and B, the more you believe in yourself, the better chance you have. I've, I've seen it countless times. Just the, the mind is a very powerful thing. Welcome to Unspoken Bravery. I'm your host, Aaron Milzinski, a multiple time Olympian. Skiing started as my first love and quickly became my greatest teacher. This podcast is meant to take a deep dive behind the capes of our everyday superheroes and find out what's under the brave spirits, the fearless feats, and the nerves of steel. It's normal to feel fear. Hardships lurk around every corner, and yet these roadblocks can be met with a challenger's mindset and turned into wonderful gifts. It's time to celebrate imperfections, to build bravery from setbacks, and to take our goals to the next level. So let's dive right in. Welcome to Unspoken Bravery, Episode 4. Today we have a chainsaw going on in the background. I think we're both feeling a little bit nervous and feeding off of that. But my guest today is one of my favorite people to interview and the most important person in my life. Welcome to the podcast, Lenny Valius. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Lenny is a two-time Olympian. He stood on the World Cup podium seven times in his career, and he's the third best cross-country skier that Canada has ever seen in Canada's entire history. But beyond his results, he was on the Ontario team for mountain biking. He's a windsurfer, a surfer, a fisherman, and really just a jack of all trades. But he's had his fair share of setbacks. He skied with a broken hand. He's had knee surgery, skied with a herniated disc, and a broken vertebrae, among other things. But Lenny is maybe the least likely person that you would expect to be the third best cross-country skier in Canada. He towers over many of us at 198 centimeters, six foot six, and he grew up with extreme asthma, eczema, and anaphylactic allergies to peanuts and fish, among other things. And today I want to help Lenny tell part of his story. It's a story filled with many ups and downs, with people not believing in him or simply casting him aside. But through it all, he's had these amazing successes and he's risen above because of his own mottos, his mental toughness, and just who he is as a person. And so I think where I want to start, Lenny, is with your childhood. Can you explain to us how bad your asthma was and what it was like growing up with this this condition and kind of how hard it was on your family as well? Yeah, I'll do my best. I'm trying to remember everything as well. So yeah, my childhood wasn't normal by any means. It was filled with hospital visits. Like my mom told me that I had 10 hospital visits that were overnight stays, anywhere from two to three nights to the longest being 10 nights. And so a lot of my childhood was spent at the Toronto Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, where sometimes I, the asthma was so bad, I suffered from a collapsed lung. I was almost intubated at one point. So it was definitely hard on my family. And I, I just remember a lot of time spent at that hospital with my mom beside me, sleeping on the couch or whatever futon they could pull out. And she was, she was always there with me. And I felt like a lot of my childhood, I was like the, (laughs) the test patient for it. I, I would always have tons of doctors. They would use me as the example of really how bad asthma can get. And I had tons of interns and young doctors coming in, listening to my chest and they were So it's kind of funny always, uh, I didn't know at the time, but I was always 
always kind of used as an example because my case was fairly severe. And I, at that time as a kid, I had no idea. But looking back now, I realize that it was quite a tough, tough go. And and asthma wasn't the only thing that I was dealing with. I had very bad eczema, which eczema is, yeah, the skin rash. I had it on my arms and legs, but normally not a big deal. But again, I don't do anything small, I guess. Like I had eczema to the point of I couldn't stop scratching my arms and legs. And it's not just the itch. I would actually scratch to the point where my arms and legs, they would bleed and scab and I would, it would be so itchy. It's like the only thing I can compare it to is if any of you have had a cast on your arm and on a hot summer day, you know, the itch under the cast is like unbearable. And that's what I lived with a lot of my childhood. And, and there's always stories with that too. There was one that really sticks out was, I was, I don't know what grade I was in three, four, but gym class, my favorite all time favorite class as a kid. Like you get to go and play all the games with the other kids. And remember one, one time my eczema was so bad that we were playing this silly game. We're all sitting under the, the big uh, parachute and I don't know, you like fill it with air and it's all doing its thing. But so I was so excited to play and everyone had to, I guess, sit in a big circle. But the class decided that because of my eczema and the rumor spreading about how it's contagious, which it obviously isn't, the teacher told me I had to sit this one out. And Your teacher? Teacher told me that, yeah. He said, you know what, for this, can you just please sit at the side of the gym? And Because nobody, nobody wanted to sit beside me so it's yeah it was always there's always things going on as a as a kid I think that's really tough because it's probably your favorite class you've always been incredibly athletic and a naturally gifted athlete I would say as well and then to have the teacher sit you down on the bleachers kind of setting that example for the rest of the students when everyone enjoys the parachute game I think that's just so crazy and talking to your mom she took you out of that school right away you went to a different school and I think you started to thrive. And I think that, you know, you pursued mountain biking and you pursued cross-country skiing. And again, you you dealt with your asthma and not only asthma and eczema, but also your peanut allergies when traveling away from home. I think we've talked before about making a sign in different, not sign, but a little card in different languages that you can hand to servers so that they know that you're allergic to peanuts. And a lot of people would let these things set them back. And for you, it's almost like it propelled you forward and it made you hungrier. But when that teacher set you down on the bleachers, what did you learn from that? And I think that that's a story of unspoken bravery starting at some of the youngest ages. Yeah. And to be completely honest, when these things happened to me, I I just trusted in my superior and kind of agreed. I was bummed, of course, but I was like, oh, shoot, I guess that's how, that's how it's got to be. And, it's, and I didn't even tell my mom in a bad way. I just explained how school was and and when she heard that, she was not happy at all. And same with the hospitalizations for asthma. I wasn't, at the time, life was normal to me. Like, that's just part of it. Like, I didn't even realize that most kids don't suffer from this. I was just honestly happy to be there. And <laughs> this might sound bad now, but when I was in the hospital, I was so happy because it was the only time I could play video games. I was My mom let me play <laughs> Any video game I wanted, whether it was the old school Duck Hunter, they would roll the TV into my room. But so, you know what, I, for how negative of a situation I had, I always seemed to find a positive 
twist to make it look and feel. So as a kid, you know what, it didn't feel that tough. But looking back now, I realized that, man, I was in some serious pain, suffering, like just even yeah, between the asthma and the eczema, like there was some serious suffering, but it was the mental state that I was in at the time. I wasn't as a kid looking at the negatives. I was always looking at the positives. I just remember I wanted to play mini sticks hockey in my basement. And I would constantly, my mom would run down and check my lungs, listen, just to make sure that I wasn't pushing it to the point where I would actually suffocate. And many times I'd have to stop and take a break and take a puffer. And I think that mindset is so interesting because I think it's really served you well in your adult life. And I think it's interesting too, because I was a little bit bullied, not to the extent that you have been, but it's interesting now because now that I'm an Olympian and that people have seen some of my success, I have some of those people who bullied me reaching back and calling me their friend or being proud of me for going to the Olympics. And so it's just interesting to see how life changes and how sometimes people are so mean when we're young, but then when we're older, we just see things more clearly. And I wish that I could reach back and tell my younger self a few different things when I was younger and being bullied as well. But a lot of people ask me this question and I really never know what to say. So I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to be mean. But when did your Olympic dream really start? Yeah, that's interesting. So if you ask your average Olympian, when did your Olympic dream start? Most of them will say, oh, when I was a kid, my dream was to go to the Olympics. And that wasn't actually the case for me. I don't know. I, I loved so many different sports. I played hockey, soccer, biking, skiing, running. Like I did pretty much every sport that I could. So I didn't have a dream of choosing one sport, going to the Olympics, like becoming a skier and going to the Olympics. It wasn't really a reality until I was in 2017. I just missed out on going to the Vancouver Olympics. Like I'm talking barely. It was a discretionary choice. Two athletes had pretty much the same results and they chose the other guy, not me, which devastated me. It was probably the time in my life that I most wanted to be an Olympian right there. So hearing that I didn't make the team and for Vancouver was the time that, I, that my Olympic dream began because there was no way that I was going to miss the next Olympics. I wanted to train harder, fight harder. I, whatever I had to do, I had to be at the next Olympics in Russia because yeah, I was devastated after not making Vancouver. That's so cool. That setback for not making the Olympics really propelled your Olympic dream forward. And I think that's so cool because other people maybe would have quit the sport or other people started with Olympic dream and that was just as close as they came. But for you, a setback and that time when it's not an upward trajectory really became the beginning of your Olympic dream and your trial to get there. Yeah, it's funny, funny where you find motivation sometimes. Like, yeah, in this case, it was a bit of a setback that just really like motivates you on those tough days, the rainy days to get out there and try a little harder, push a little more in intensity just to, you know, there's like how close you were and you know, you don't need that much more to make the next Olympics, but you're just fighting so much harder to make sure that you're not fighting for that last spot. I wanted to be guaranteed and fighting for, let's say, a medal rather than just to make the team at this point. So yeah, I didn't have my first Olympic experience. They always say the first one is you go there to just take it all in and all this. Yeah, I didn't have that, but I had the, 
I had the feeling well, of missing out just made me want to fight not to be just a member of the Olympic team, but to actually try and win a medal. Wow, that's really cool. And it's cool to watch your trajectory from that point, because after that, within years, you had five World Cup podiums. And you're kind of called a sprinter, but you've had World Cup podiums in 10Ks, 15Ks, team events. You're kind of, again, a jack of all trades. And so that was really cool to see. And then your path is kind of this up and down roller coaster. You had a setback and then all of a sudden you had five podiums. And then heading into Sochi, you had knee surgery, which didn't work. And you struggled for years. And Sochi, you really couldn't race the way you wanted to because of such intense pain. And then you came back from that again and had two podiums and made history with your relay teams. And that was really cool because I remember you calling me and you were telling me, Aaron, this is the best day of my life when you podium with Devin, Alex, and Canute, some of your great friends. And that was really cool because it seems like each time you podiumed in the past, you've kind of been at a disadvantage, not because of your asthma, not because of all of these things, but sometimes you didn't even have a full team, especially competing against you know, these huge nations like Norway. Sometimes your teammates came off the plane, jet-lagged, stepped into their skis, and had amazing performances. And also, a lot of your competitors take these asthma medications that you take, but they haven't had this history with asthma that you've had. And how hard is that, racing against these people, feeling like you're kind of not only already starting as David versus Goliath, but then all of a sudden having you know, more things stacked against you. And does it up the challenge? Does it make you even want it more? Yeah, it's it's so tough because I can confidently say that almost every cross-country skier on the World Cup claims to have asthma and they all take buffers. And I guess everybody to a certain extent has some sort of asthma when you're pushing your body to that. But in my eyes, none of them actually have asthma. Like, being hospitalized as a child. And now that I'm retired and even my competitors that I know that during racing had asthma, none of them are using puffers anymore. Yet to sleep through the night, I need a puffer. Otherwise, all of my body will stay awake because I can't breathe. So like, it's, it is tough. I fought for years and years working with a good respirologist in Toronto and we were doing lung function tests, everything. And I don't remember if I was around 16 or 17 years old maybe 18. And I had my first ever test that I hit the average for like an 18 year old male. And we're talking about non-athletic lung function. So like your average Joe. Not an endurance sport. Not an endurance sport. Like I finally hit the average lung function for my age at 18 from working, taking, yeah, different puffers. And so it's not like my asthma helped me whatsoever. Like I wasn't using it to gain anything. I was clawing back to try and get to the average non-athletic male status. So yeah, it is tough watching others take similar medication to help boost a percent or two where I'm like already probably whatever, 10% behind them, just clawing, trying to be the average. So it's tough. But again, I didn't let it bother me because A, it was in the rules and let people do what they can. And (laughs) racing in a sport with the amount of doping we have and everything, you can't just 
sit there and like be upset that some people are doping and all this. Of course, I don't like it. Like I hate dopers, but at the same time, you just got to focus on yourself. And I know I can podium and I know our team can podium even though we're competing against dopers. I know it's possible. So that's a lot of what we focused on is just, and myself especially is like not getting too down about the dopers. We talk about it. We know, we know who the sketchy ones are and thankfully a lot of them have been caught, but you know what, you just focus on yourself and, and just do the best you can. And we're fast enough to compete regardless of if people are doping or not. And that actually in the end feels almost better because you've beat the dopers and you did it clean. It's, it's kind of, kind of a sweet feeling. Yeah. And as Ryan Dodd said in the last episode, comparison is the thief of all joy. And if you started comparing and you started getting down because, you know, people maybe not only had an advantage, but were trying to get an advantage, then it can get you down. It can kind of get you in this dark place. And what's so interesting with you and what I've seen is that you have this crazy challenger's mindset. I remember you telling me your whole race plan going into the sprint relay with Alex Harvey in which you won. And you you had a whole plan and your plan wasn't, it was so different from what I had heard. And I knew that day you were going to have a great race. You knew where you were going to pass. You knew how you were going to do everything. And for me, that was so interesting to see. But for me, it's a little bit different with Alpine and with cross country, because a lot of the time, if you talk to an Alpine ski racer after a race, they say, oh, this went badly. Oh, that run just sucked. Or, oh, I fell or I almost fell, and they kind of count themselves out. And with cross country and with all of our friends, what I've noticed is that you always seem to pick something positive to say even with the negative. And I think that's such a unique thing in sport. And you kind of have that sandwich effect, you know, something bad, something good, something bad, or something good, something bad, something good. And we try to do that sometimes. But for you, sometimes you raced 50 kilometers, and that's a long race. And sometimes you would get dropped after the first 10 kilometers and you had 40 kilometers to think about racing alone. You're suffering. It's an endurance sport. You're suffering. And so I find that your mindset for you, your mindset is so important to you. And you have all of these little tricks that you've taught me some of them. I haven't embodied them completely, but when I'm running intervals, you always tell me to enjoy the last three. Or if something goes poorly, you tell me to put out my hand, place that thing that was so bad in it and toss it over my shoulder and pretend that it's done. And how did you develop this mindset? How important is it? And why did it help you get to where you are? I don't know where it came from. I used it a lot, whether it was to get through a tough intensity and you're just, you're kind of compartmentalizing your whole workout or you're like the tough parts of a race. Yeah. If you have 30K to go, you kind of break each lap down and just focus on that one climb, that one section, do something. And it's kind of amazing how quick time passes once your mind is, it worked for me. It changed how I thought about some of my workouts, some of my races. So I just found it helped to really pass time. And also you're focusing on a very small part of the race. So chances are you're doing that part of the race really well. If you have 30K left of a race, which I rarely did these super long races, but when you, when I had to do them, you have to ski well the whole time. You can't just zone out and and just ski. Like I found that focusing on small parts actually helped me have better results, but also pass the time way quicker. That's really cool. And it's something I'm trying to learn from you. You run a lot of my intervals with me and you kind of coach me through them. And you tell me that as soon as I'm done an interval, it's done 
control my breathing and you know, it's over. Stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about the pain. And you have this amazing pain tolerance, but you also have this amazing mindset. And the point in time in your life that I really, your career, I guess, that I really want to focus on was something that was hard for me to watch you go through, but something that also was absolutely incredible. And so before the Pyeongchang Olympics, you started having pain in your shoulder and your upper back. And you knew it was bad. You kept telling people it was bad. You were advocating for yourself, but they wouldn't believe you. And you are the least anxious person I've ever met. I'm different, (laughs) but they kept telling you you had anxiety and that wasn't the truth. And so you knew something was wrong. And so what did you do at that point? I'll back up a little bit. I was lifting in the gym over my head and I just, it wasn't a crack. I just felt a slip in my, between my shoulder blades, just like a, wasn't painful at the time just something slipped. And so I quickly stopped lifting and moved, swung my arms around, felt stiff, but I didn't feel like I was like, okay, dodged a bullet. And actually a week before that, we had the test event in Korea, just a world cup, had a great weekend considering it was one of the worst weekends of my life for eating because you go to Korea and I even had notes written on a piece of paper saying, I'm allergic to fish. I'm allergic to peanuts. As it turns out, Korea, I think they put peanut oil and fish sauce in every single dish that they cook. That's what it seemed like at our hotel anyway. So I'd show this little card in Korean and they would assure me that there was nothing. So first day, a couple days before the race, take a bite of my food, totally knocked off my feet like some either peanuts or fish was in there. Done. So sleep terribly that night, wake up, do some training, try and eat again, same reaction. So Night before the race, I'm like, you know what? I can't risk it. I haven't eaten in two days because after I get an anaphylactic reaction, I'm either very upset. I just can't eat anymore. My stomach's upset. And so the night before the race, I'm like, you know what? Boiled potatoes. It's the only safe thing I can do before this World Cup. And halfway through, I'm just garfing it down because I'm starving at this point. Halfway down, I just feel my stomach. They put either peanut oil or fish sauce on their boiled potatoes. And at that point, I felt really sick because I ate so much of it. So long story short, I didn't eat for two days leading in to this World Cup. And I just remember going through the heats and telling my wax tech, I am so hungry. I'm going to pass out. I can't, I don't think I can do another heat. And my wax tech, Joel, was like, no, you can do this. You got this. (laughs) And I just kept going through. I ended up making the final and... On the Olympic track. Yeah. And missing the podium. I'm not kidding you by what felt like an inch. So I was devastated because fourth place hurts. I've never actually been fourth in a big race before. Fourth place is the most painful spot to finish. And I was so hungry, kind of emotional from just like pushing my body to the absolute limit. After finishing fourth there, that's when the injury happened in the gym. So I knew something slipped in my back. And because the pain wasn't extreme right away. I was telling the staff and doctors, physios, and I was just saying something happened. It slipped and skiing, it started to get a little tighter, my shoulder, my neck got sore. So all these things started happening around my body's compensating for something and I didn't know what. And then it started getting a lot more painful during intensity, like using my arms as much as you do in skiing. I started to lose the ability to double pole, which is just pushing with your arms for long periods of time. So I didn't understand that either. So I kept 
yeah, saying something's wrong. We need to figure this out, please. And there was every other reason in the book for the pain, anxiety, it's all in my head, all this. So it was really frustrating because it got to the point where I, my results started dropping off and I'm coming from a fourth place with no food. So I know I'm skiing well and I, my results just keep going down to the point of, I'm like, okay, put me on a plane. I'm going home to find help. And this caught the team by surprise because they were sure that it was just in my head and they're like, oh shoot, something might actually be wrong. So reluctantly they sent me home and I saw a bunch of massage therapists, physios, everything, and actually had some tests where if I put my hand over my head and open and close my fist, my left arm would completely fall asleep. I lost all motor function after about 20 seconds of just opening and closing my hand above. So something was being pinched pretty severely. My body was guarding. There's something pretty seriously wrong. You can't expect to ski if you can't open and close your hand. So I had quite a bit of work done, but didn't make a big difference. I went to the Norams in Quebec and got beat up pretty bad in those races. I ended up finishing eighth, and that was definitely one of the lowest lows of my entire career there, being passed in the final straight by an unknown. I don't I don't know that who it was. Passed in the final straight and finished eighth. And the guy that passed me is kind of funny to think about now, just like celebrated in my face with a fist and yelled, yes, obviously he was pretty pumped to beat me. But at that time, I'm just like, I'm injured. I don't know what it is. I just got whooped in a Noram and I need to figure out what's wrong. My neck and back were so stiff. So I went to a Cairo there and just said, you know what, crack my back, like manipulate. And when the Cairo did that, it got even worse. So Then I limped home and went to my favorite doctor of all time in Toronto, Doug Richards, who is the... He's a dude. He's a dude. He's he's the best guy. Because when even with my knee, when when I can't figure stuff out and no other doctor in, in the world can figure it out, he figures it out. So he took this on and man, did he do another good job. So he told me right away, of course, something's wrong. This doesn't happen to normal people from just overuse. So he had me in for an MRI. I think there's a wait list of like months in Toronto. He had me in pretty much that night, middle of the night. I remember driving down to Toronto, getting the MRI. He gets the results. And unfortunately, he told me you have a herniated disc in your upper back, which is not good because normally it's a lower back thing and associated with a lot of pain, but the upper back has a lot of different movements. And that's why I was feeling that pain, but he didn't stop there. He he realized that something else could be wrong and he knows MRI doesn't scan the bones well. So he actually got me into a CT scan pretty shortly after and I did that. And instead of getting the images sent to him, he actually went down to a Toronto hospital and met with, he said on that day, there happened to be 10 of the best surgeons in Canada, neck surgeons in Canada there. And so they all looked at my case and picked it apart and had all these solutions. And one of the doctors actually picked out that I have a very substantial crack. It was more than a crack. (laughs) Like when I saw it, it looked more like a pizza slice on my vertebrae, the one just below where it was herniated. So I do actually have a fractured vertebrae also. And what they came up with there was a CT scan guided needle into the crack to put a little bit of anti-inflammatory to relieve some of my pain. 
and that helped locally a lot. It took a little while for my the rest of my body to relax from just months of abuse of trying to ignore this thing. And I just remember, so this is, <laughs> to put this in perspective, this is a month before the Olympics in Korea. And I'm at home lying on my back on the wood floor most of the day, just like in pain, just relaxing, trying to let my arm and shoulder heal. I did a few ski workouts, maybe a couple a week. and They were not pretty. I have my dad and my old club coach were there and giving me positive reinforcement, but I think we all knew it wasn't looking good. So that was my prep to Korea Olympics. Yeah. And it was crazy because I saw you during that time and I came home. You couldn't train most of the time. And it, it's true. He was lying on his back on the floor. And one of your teammates was there, Knut, who I think maybe it was a blessing he was there because Knut is one of the most interesting Olympians I've ever met. But I remember talking to you and you were pretty down. And again, it's it's a month until the Olympics. I'm preparing for the Olympics. And you were saying, I don't know if I should go. And I was taken aback. Of course you should go. You qualified for the Olympics. You're you know, amazing. But you didn't want to take someone else's spot. You didn't want to ski if you weren't on top of your game. And sort of reluctantly, you went to the Olympics. And again, your mood just seemed really discouraged then. And you're a very happy person. You're a very, obviously, going through all these things, you look at the bright side. And you went to the Olympics. And at that time, your focus was the team events, for sure, and your sprint. And I remember sitting on the couch getting ready for you to race your race because I had to race the next day. And I didn't know how it would go. I remember you texting me that morning saying your back was horrible on a run beforehand. And I was so nervous watching you sitting on that couch and wondering how it would go because we knew that that little piece of vertebrae could break off. You hadn't really raced to your max for quite some time and that takes a while. And so can you walk us through that Olympic day? Yeah. So the morning of, of course, my back is, upper back is seized, let's say like the something's stuck. It's just like neck pain starting, shoulder, the whole thing's stuck. It's like one of the worst. It's like I went back to nothing after all that I've been through and started to feel good finally. Couldn't even run because so the vertebrae that I broke has it's kind of a joint. I guess the ribs slide on the vertebrae to allow the lungs to breathe. So when that jams up, the whole left side of my rib cage doesn't open and close. So I lose even more breathing ability, which, you know, with my asthma is the last thing I want. So it's like yeah, like I was pure sad the morning of the race. Luckily, it's a late afternoon race, as I remember. So I'm running with my teammate. I said, you know what, go on without me. I can't even jog with them. So I go back and against even kind of doctor's orders. And it was my last resort. I just grabbed a foam roller and did a couple rolls over my entire back. And I kid you not, had one of the biggest like manipulation cracks, just like a a low thud, everything just like, <laughs> it's almost like lined up again. And I got up, I didn't push it. I was actually kind of nervous that I did something bad. It was that big of a clunk, but immediate relief. So I was back to kind of the days before how good I felt. So that was amazing. That was my first win of the day, just getting, so now I'm like, all right, let's do this. I can qualify. Like I'm going to give it my best shot. And I fought like crazy in that qualifier. The goal is to be top 30 to get into the rounds. So that was 
that was the mark. I needed to be top 30. So I fought super hard. I wasn't even honestly leading into the race. I was more thinking about my back than even how I'm going to ski this course. So I, I ski around the course, same as I did when I was fourth. And coming around the last corner, I told myself, you can't double pull very hard because you're going to blow your back out. I come around the corner in the qualifier and I'm just like, screw this. I've come this far. If I don't double pull hard, that there goes my chance at top 30. So I turned the corner, started ramping up my double pull, felt pretty good. Went a little faster, still felt good. 100 yards to go. I just opened it up and I'm like, let's go. And I That's what you're known for too. Yeah. And I'm like, I just closed this qualifier off really hard, crossed the line, not thinking about the result necessarily. I'm like, my back is okay. Like it's not great, but it didn't didn't have a setback. I thought it was just going to like pop. And I look at the board and don't remember the number exactly, but I was safely into the rounds in low 20s. So such a relief. Like if nothing else happened that day, that was already a win from where I was and where I got to, because there's a lot of good skiers that did not make the top 30 on that course. And I was just thrilled to be in the rounds and I have a chance. And that was just a big goal of mine. So, But then you got through, you not only made the rounds, you started racing hard, you got through the first set of heats. Yeah. So the quarterfinal, I skied, I ski every heat the exact same. I sit at the very back in fifth or sixth place because there's six people per heat and follow along until near the end of the one and a half K lap, either an attack happens or people start to fall off the back. And that's when I go. So the last kind of third or quarter of the lap, I just kind of attack and I pass a couple guys. I'm in fourth or fifth. So coming around the last corner again, I'm like, well, I'm going to leave it all out here. This is kind of an all or nothing moment. I was able to pass a couple guys in the final straight and moved on to the semi, which was for me pretty intense and emotional because there, A, I hadn't been in a semi for since my neck injury, not even close, hadn't even qualified. So just to beat, make a semi and at the Olympics, like everything started coming together, but I knew my day wasn't done and I had more. So the semifinal came and I was just, yeah, I did the exact same strategy. I pushed as hard as I could cross the line in a lunge with another guy. And unfortunately by, I don't remember now, by a 10th of a second or something missed out on going to the final. So again, it was one of the best races of my life, one of the best days of my life. It's always hard to not make it to the final, but you know what? Finishing seventh in the Olympics was, I still to this day cannot believe it even happened. And I'm so, so grateful that every, all the help I received from whether it be the, my favorite doctor in Toronto and Dr. Richards and everybody that helped along the way and believed me because there was a lot of people that didn't. And yeah, the people that believed in me, I'm just grateful to them because I really went from zero to seven. To hero. In in a month, which I still can't believe. Well, and not only did you come seventh, but I'm sure that that's the best sprint result in Canadian history at an Olympic Games. Yeah, it is. And so that's really cool. And what do you think the lessons are that you took away from that? Yeah, it all worked out, but it's kind of hard to think about the lessons. So waking up that morning, having a setback, like if I woke up with no pain, there wouldn't have been any extra fuel. So I woke up sore. I miraculously on the foam roller had a little mini victory, which 
kind of gave me some extra life and adrenaline to say like, all right, I'm back. Let's do this. So I think the lesson is you're never completely out of it. As much as you think you are, you're never completely out of it. Your mind is a very powerful tool. And by using these small victories, like realizing that, hey, I kind of fixed my back on this foam roller, even though I wasn't supposed to do that, but hey, it worked. So like those small victories and then qualifying using my arms, double pulling as hard as I could and not blowing my back. I was just using these as stepping stones. They weren't necessarily goals, but they're milestones. I was reaching milestones and every time I did, it gave me more like kind of mental, I just had more power and confidence in what I was doing. And at no point did I think I'm going to be top 10 at the games. I didn't, that wasn't even, it was of course a goal. I wanted to make the semi was my ultimate goal once I made the heats, but yeah, it was just, and I honestly feel if somehow I skied fast enough to get to the final, I think, I think I was still like stepping up this ladder. Like I wish I made that final because I think I could have competed with those guys as well, but man, I was just thrilled. So I think the lesson to be learned is that A, never count yourself out and B, the more you believe in yourself, the better chance you have. I've I've seen it countless times. Just the, the mind is a very powerful thing. All my podiums in my career have come in spurts of a couple weeks. So it kind of shows that, yeah, maybe I was in great shape, blah, blah, blah. That helps too. But once you get one good race under your belt, and you build off that it and it also works with your I had great teammates that were if they were getting podiums and they were skiing fast it actually built my confidence too because I knew I could keep up with them in all the workouts so whether it's teammates showing you they can do it or yourself as soon as you believe in yourself it it does help a lot and it's not it's not all about the the medals it's just like you just want to ski ski your best and that was always the same. The medals, I, I absolutely love them. Like, don't get me wrong. But for a lot of people in most of my career, it wasn't all about the medals. It's like I skied hundreds, probably 200 World Cup races and only, and yeah, seven of them were great, but I had many others that were great races. They just didn't have any hardware to go with it. So yeah. Yeah. And I remember in some of those races that were still great, you were so proud of yourself because you you tried your best. And that was something that you'd often ask me, did you try your best? Then you can walk away proud. And I think the same things that I learned from Larissa Yerkew is sometimes you have to be your own best friend. Often, always, you should be your own best friend. How would you treat your best friend? That's how you should treat yourself. And I remember in Pyeongchang, just the day after, I think, Mary Michelle texted me because I had a disappointing first run. And she said, it's not over until it's over. You have two runs. Don't make yourself fail before you even try again. And I think you kind of embody both of those things. So now this question is a little bit selfish of me to ask maybe because it's something I wonder like crazy because you're in an endurance sport. The fear of failure is definitely there. The fear of injury is less there than let's say water ski jumping or maybe alpine downhill skiing or something. But you seem to seek out that fear you thrive on adrenaline, you surf and windsurf in double overhead. I watch you. It's terrifying. We have a rule that I can't jump in after you. Sometimes you do these cliff jumps that no one would even think about doing. And why do you seek that out? What is fear to you? To me, you are one of the most fearless people I've seen, except when it comes to public speaking. So thank you for being here. (laughs) But 
why do you seek out that adrenaline? And why are you happiest when you feel that adrenaline? Because skiing is not a scary sport at all. I feel like I do need to find stuff that scares me outside of sport. And that stuff I, I truly do enjoy, but really it's not the fear. I love calculating risk and executing. That The feeling I get from that is one of the best feelings because I don't I don't love to go jump cliffs over and over a cliff that I know I can do 20, 30 feet. I, I'm not like an adrenaline junkie where I can just sit there and run off a cliff five, six times a day. I, I don't love that. I don't like getting off my chair for that. But if you give me one jump that's maybe 40 feet, that's a little more, it takes thinking, it takes like, there's a little bit of downside if, if this goes wrong, if that goes wrong. The calculating and leading into that, the nerves I feel from that, they're pretty special. I like that part of it. So with the surfing, yeah, I, smaller waves, don't get me wrong. I love them. They're great. You don't get scared. So the reason I love to go out on those big days, and don't get me wrong, I'm probably not even good enough on some of those days to be out there, but I love going out there because it takes a lot of calculation, a lot of, I have to really focus and think about if I don't do everything right, I could actually be in some serious trouble. Like some of the things I do definitely are life-threatening, but I love the preparation. And when I'm sitting there and thinking mentally of how I'm going to survive this next hour of surfing in these waves and all the game plans, where are my outs? Where am I? What happens if I go here? Really, you're not thinking about anything else. It's you're 100% focused on your task at hand, which I think is kind of cool. I love that feeling. And really being in the moment and trying to figure out how am I going to survive this and maybe even thrive in this environment. So I don't know, it's hard to explain. It's, it's, I'm not a a daredevil, but like you said, I'll, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do some <laughs> things that not many other people will ever consider doing. And I'll just pull it out of the woodwork and just plan it. And people will say, no, you can't do it. But I know in my head, it's all calculated down to every detail. So a big part of why I had so many other hobbies outside of ski racing is just also just to get away and to learn something different. It's for me, even as a child, I did so many sports and I found that skiing was the same. I, I almost got bored when I just focused on one sport. I couldn't just train the whole year. So a lot of my best coaches knew that about me and would say, hey, Lenny, put two weeks of solid work in here and I'm going to send you home for 10 days. And they said, we're not going to check in on you. Do whatever you want. And that honestly was one of the best best coaching advice. When I had my coach Louis Bouchard in Quebec told me that, he's like, look, I need you for two weeks and I'll send you home and I won't check in for 10 days. So that was amazing because short term again, it's like working the last third of an intensity session. It's like there's end in sight. It's not eight months of training ahead of me. It's like, okay, two weeks, I got this. And you start you just get through that. The quality was higher. And he sends me home. It's not that I'm not training. I'm either going surfing, windsurfing. I'm doing whatever I want, but I'm not sitting on the couch. So in the end, that's when I saw my biggest gains is when I had some focus training and then they let me just be me. And I think a lot of athletes should look for that is just like, find what you love and you need to make a little bit of time for it. It doesn't have to be as extreme as I did almost half and half, but <laughs> you need to, everybody needs something else other than their sport to just rely on when the sport's not going well, you need your, 
you need your focus away from sport, whether it's an hour, whether it's 10 minutes a day, you need that. I think it's really important. Yeah. And you told me that you've told me that a few times and maybe it took me a while to find it. And I think that that's a big reason why I started this podcast and a big reason why I started the bid project last year, because it was just kind of my passion and something I'm interested in. And the more I seek that out, the more I see that in other athletes. And it's interesting hearing you talk about it because it seems like you deal with, you know, the suffering in your sport, endurance sport, and the fear the same way. You kind of take it step by step. You plan. You have this challenger's mindset that it's a challenge instead of something you could fail at. And I think it's such a beautiful way to go forward. And I'm going to let you go and get off the hook of this public speaking, but you really helped me come up with a name, Unspoken Bravery. And it was something that you said in a text message to me when I was overseas. And why do you think why was it so important for Unspoken Bravery to have its name to you? What does it mean to you? And kind of how do you relate to that? Yeah, you had a lot of good names for the podcast, but this one, yeah, Unspoken Bravery stood out just because I could relate to it. And I know there's many champions, whether it be through sport or successful businessmen, everything, nobody's just cruised all the way to the top. There are these kind of, yeah, these unspoken battles and all these brave things that they had to do and overcome to get to the top and once you're like let's say an olympic champion world cup winner everybody just talks about winning 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 like oh you did so great on that day but i thought it was cool that you're actually going deeper and trying to find out the tough parts that led to this and made you who you are today so like i've had my fair share of struggles but a lot of them actually, in a weird way, have helped me become a more successful athlete. So I, I just love and hearing these stories from the people that you've interviewed of they're all super successful, but they haven't had the easiest pathways to their success. So it's really cool to hear what everybody's been through to get to where they are today. Yeah. And I think you haven't shared a lot of your story. You've kept silent about it. And I respect that. And I think that it's really cool, but it's also really cool to share it and to learn from it and to show the things that make us who we are and to, as we say, unmask or uncloak the superheroes. And to me, you're such a superhero. And a lot of people think that. And I just really want to say thank you for coming on. I know it's not exactly what you would love to do, but thank you for inspiring me. Thank you for being such a good teammate, a kind human. And thank you just for coming on and sharing your story, your unspoken story. And I just think that you are the bravest person that I know. Thank you, Erin. And it was nice actually sharing the story. I, I don't think I've ever shared the full story ever. And there's there's still more to it, but maybe that's another another podcast we can <laughs> dig even deeper because oh, there's come back. <laughs> there's there's even there's even more. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, we didn't touch on the really hard stuff, I guess. But thank you for being here. And thanks for listening to our dog tiptoeing around here. But this is Laren signing off. Bye, everybody. See ya. Unspoken Bravery is hosted by me, Aaron Milzinski, produced by the team at Ginny Media and was created during the Podcast Accelerator program. Thank you for listening to Unspoken Bravery. My goal with this podcast is to connect with you through real life experiences. So I would love to hear from you. A hello, feedback, future ideas, you name it. You can reach me on my Instagram account at Aaron Milzinski 
or head to my website, erinmelzinski.com. If you like the podcast, please share, review, and subscribe. I hope to see you back here to uncover your own hidden superhero. Superhero.